I want to introduce to us uh, now Robbie. So hello, Robbie. Are you there? Can you hear me? I am here. Good to see hey, you. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for joining us, Robbie. So am I right in saying you're a colonel, but also a reverend? Yeah, I'm a complete has been on the colonel front. It's um, eight years now since I left the army, but um, I did have 37 years in. So, um, yeah, quite a, a, a bit of experience, but I've left the army. I've retrained as a, a minister and I now uh, look after a Baptist church in South Wales. Wow, brilliant. 37 years. That's a, that's a long time. So you were involved when you're in the army, particularly in a range of things, but particularly in hospital. Now, if you have a year nine careers fair at school, it's not really something that crops up on the, uh, the careers advice or list. Um, anyway, so how on earth did you get into a career in, in bomb disposal? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, for me, it didn't actually start uh, in land-based bomb disposal. I was a military diver, and um, I stayed a military diver actually for a very long time. Um, and I know you're probably thinking, I'm sure that's the um, the area of the Royal Navy as the senior service and not the army, but uh, we do have. Uh, military divers in the army as well and the navy are, are, are quite rude about us a, a lot of the time calling us pond life and, and such like but um we have that capability and we share it with with the navy in in big time and it's actually it's not a, a huge a transition to go from being a military diver into the area of of bomb disposal it's something quite a lot of us do um but it was somebody else's idea uh, as as you would expect and i um i retrained um, as as an, an army bomb disposal operator for conventional munitions, you know, the classic big heavy metal thing that's fallen out of the sky and needs to be rendered safe uh, on the ground. So I, I trained uh, in, in two aspects, but then there was um, a new kid on the block uh, at the time I was doing all of this. And that was, of course, the improvised explosive device and the whole counter-terrorist capability that was was growing hugely at that time. So I, um, I retrained again as an improvised explosive device disposal operator in the counter-terrorist role as well. So I had quite a few um, bomb disposal strings to, to my bow by the end of it, but it was all somebody else's idea. But I have to say that um, having started in that area of capability, um, I took to it um, and loved it. And um, I have no regrets about spending my career doing that sort of business brilliant and and i guess diffusing and, and disposing of a bomb it must have been pretty petrifying how did you cope under the pressure of actually doing that um well i'll be honest uh, I, I didn't really feel the, the pressure when you're actually um doing a job that lonely walk to a a device um that that, that could explode is obviously slightly concerning but with, with bomb disposal um, you get completely involved in the in the mechanics really of what what you're trying to do um, you are thinking very widely you're thinking outside of the box you're looking at the secondary or tertiary threats that that might be around so your mind is is very focused um, and really there isn't much room for classic fear at that stage we leave a bit of space for that afterwards um, and and one can sit down uh, over a cup of coffee after an incident when when you're all um, you know back in the mess having had tea and medals and all that sort of thing and, and then reflect and and feel a bit uh, a bit nervous then but uh, we reserve it for afterwards rather than during 
Wow. And and did did you obviously got into this through, through various means, but were your family in the military? Did you have a military background at all? Not at all. Not not even slightly. Um, no, very non-military family. We were five kids at home, three girls and two. And um, we all went in different directions, but none uh, except me in, into the military. Um, I was a very keen young mountaineer, age sort of 15, 16, 17. Um, and at age 17, went out and I was climbing in, in the French Alps, which I, I loved to do. We had a couple of very good seasons. Um, and I came back that year and I just knew I wanted to join the army. Uh, I thought it would be an opportunity for me to uh, to grow up, perhaps, and um, and decide what I was going to do with the rest of my life. Wow. So so no military kind of background. Um, what about in terms of religious background? Were your parents Christians? Do you have any kind of influence um, and kind of prayer stuff going on? What, what background was it in that respect? Yeah. yeah. Again, again, I, I I turned out to be the the only one who um, who became a Christian. So non-Christian family totally. Uh, I'm not quite sure what coloured sheep that makes me in the family, but um, I was that different coloured sheep, um, not, not not a single Christian among them. Um, they, they used to uh, quite mercilessly take the mickey. Uh, I was called Brother Rob for uh, a, a number of years, but um, that changed uh, over the years. And uh, respect, I like to believe, ha- has grown considerably, but a non-Christian family. Great. So, brother Rob, we'll, we'll try not to use that title tonight. Okay. But, um, um, but so, yeah, so, so no kind of Christian background, no kind of praying stuff. But then during your, your bomb disposal career, then there was actually an event, wasn't there, an incident, a, a pretty huge incident that, that suddenly got you praying. Uh, can you describe and tell us about that really fascinating event in your life? Yeah. Yeah. It, it was a, a very un- unusual, uh, almost a freak uh, incident. Um, it, it involved diving. Uh, it, it involved the conventional munitions disposal training that I'd had. But it was also very much improvised in its nature. So it was it was bringing together all aspects of my um, my bomb disposal background. What actually happened was um, a, a German World War Two bomb, a 500 kilogram thing. So one that's quite large, bigger than me, um, had, had landed at Beckton Gasworks in East London. And it had actually gone through the crown, through the top, through the domed top of one of those very large uh, gasometers. Um, during that same raid, other gasometers around were badly damaged. And the one next door was actually blown up completely. It was completely destroyed. Uh, so there was a lot of damage around. Uh, and the good industrious folk of East London set about uh, repairing everything in, in the gasworks and, and patched up all of the, the holes in, in all of the other gasometers to get the system working again and to support the, the war effort. Uh, one of those patches that were applied was over the round hole in the crown of gasometer number four. Uh, so they actually sealed in side holder number four the bomb that had gone in through and had not exploded. Now, a gasometer is effectively an an upturned telescopic cup that sits on a deep water sump. And and the gas is pumped in from underneath through a high pressure gas main and lifts this telescopic cup to hold the gas and the weight of it pumps it back down again so it can be distributed. 
Well, what had happened is that the bomb had gone in through the crown, through the water sump in, in the base, and it had hit the uh, the concrete skin below that. Uh, and it landed sideways on, formed a bit of a splash crater and embedded itself down there. But the nose cone of the bomb toppled off to, to one side uh, and landed point upwards to the side of the, the gas holder itself in its very base below the water sump. So that every time the gasometer went down as it emptied, it, it never went down the last couple of feet because the inside of the top lift was resting on the nose of the bomb. Uh, and it carried on doing that for many, many years. Nobody knew why holder number four would never completely empty uh, until eventually the, the nose of the bomb poked a small hole inside the lift of the gasometer. This caused a gas leak, which had to be repaired and investigated. Uh, and they have a very clever system for putting a diver inside a gasometer uh, in, in very um, sophisticated equipment that is good for diving in, in um, contaminated waters. Uh, so he was able to get in uh, and investigate the problem and patch up the hole. The, the diver that went in was an ex-Royal Marine, not a bomb disposal type, but uh, he was experienced enough to recognize the ogive shaped nose of this um, bomb bomb cone, if you like, um, and, and identified it as a, a piece of ordnance. He made a very swift exit from the water and uh, we got the call. And so I turned up at Beckton Gasworks late on a Friday night in a November evening. It was cold and wet and thoroughly miserable. And cutting a very long story short, I had a, um, a very brief time in which to learn how gasometers worked and functioned and eventually got myself and uh, a small team, just two other divers, uh, in through an airlock on the top of the gasometer, winched down uh, into a small rubber dinghy inside the gasometer, floating on the, the water sump inside. Uh, and we paddled over to the point below where the patch had been put over this hole in the side of the gasometer. So we knew we were above the obstruction, the suspected piece of ordnance. And um, I went about starting the first dive. And one thing I, I haven't mentioned about this um, gasometer and how it's put together is that the water sump is, is capped. It's topped with a, a, a layer of oil that goes in at the time the gasometer is built and it just remains there forever. And, and it provides a barrier between the water and the gas itself uh, and also provides some lubrication for the systems inside the gasometer, which is moving all of the time. That layer of oil was was quite a problem for the diver. As I rolled back off the, the dinghy and we were doing the sort of surface preparations to start the dive, so checking we knew where our quick release buckles were and knives were and, and so on. And all of that was becoming a complete nonsense because this black oil was smearing all over the face mask. Uh, it was generally getting in everything and it was an, an awful mess. Uh, so the signal was given to me from the dinghy to, to break surface, to get down as, as quickly as I could below this foul mess on the surface to get to cleaner water under deep underneath and, and carry on the dive from there. So I um, was carrying a couple of extra weights. I, um, I vented out everything in the suit and emptied my lungs as well so that I was negatively buoyant. And uh, down we started to go. 
I got uh, just a couple of meters below the surface when I made my first uh, inhalation. Now, because of the foul um, oil and grit mixture on the surface, because that had been sloshing around, uh, around about the, um, the what we would call the first and second stage of the demand valve system on my diving equipment, which was just basic ordinary air diving equipment that had got inside the seal. And um, and my first inhalation basically gave me um, a, a complete lungful of this muck, this oil and filth uh, from from the surface. Um, and that left me in, in, in a really uh, difficult position. Um, I was very disorientated. I was quite nauseous. I was very giddy. I couldn't have told you which direction was up. <laughs> I was still kind of tumbling and descending. I was pretty sure of that. But I, I knew that if I tried to breathe again, I was going to drown in this um, in this oil. And I couldn't quite see uh, what to do. Uh, what I actually did uh, was something that I'd never done before. Uh, we've heard about my non-Christian background. There was none of that there. But I found myself praying. I, I prayed to God that uh, he would help me. It was a very uh, earnest, earnest yeah. prayer. Um, Do you remember what you actually prayed? Do you remember the, the words or just the, the gist of it? It was God help me was, yeah. was certainly in there. Um, but there was an acknowledgement in, in me that I, I couldn't solve this problem uh, myself. Uh, you know, there's none of my my training and experience. And I was quite an experienced diver at this stage. Um, not, nothing really told me, you know, what to do uh, at this stage. So it really was, you know, over to you, God, if you're there, um, help me. Uh, what actually happened then was that I had a very tight grip by my teeth on the, the mouthpiece and I vomited and exhaled every last vestige of everything that was in my lungs, uh, plus quite a bit more. <laughs> It's amazing what you can get out of there when you have to. Um, Even even sweet or niblet sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Quite. (laughs) So that that all went back down through the the mouthpiece um, and was exhaled with some vigour, shall we say. Uh, What that actually did was it it, it blew the filth and the muck away from the, the seal, the diaphragm seal at the cylinders. So that when I automatically re inhaled again with equal vigour, the seal worked and I got fresh air back down through the mouthpiece and, and in. Uh, I was fully expecting another lung full of muck and, and thought that that would, would be it. But fresh air came uh, and God saved me uh, that night with, without any doubt in my mind. Of course, there's a good technical explanation. And, and, and people have said to me since, you know, good drills, boss. You did exactly the right thing to save that situation. But I know that that wasn't me at all. Um, I know in my own heart that God saved me that night. Yeah, that's an amazing story. It's, it's pretty grim to hear, isn't it? All that, all that stuff filling your lungs. It's hor- absolutely horrible. Well, horrible experience. Mm. But so God saved you out of that. And that must have kind of triggered something in your head and heart then about God. So what happened then? Did you just go, oh, I'll, I'll just ignore God now? Or did you start following him? Or did you have a kind of middle ground? What what happened next in terms of your understanding of, of God? Yeah, no, it was um, it, it was a bigger experience than, than that. Um, a, a, apart from the fact that he saved me, I, I felt a, a very distinct sense of, of composure in, in that moment. Um, I knew that I was where God wanted me to be. 
um, I think would be the best way of describing it. Um, and I, I, I did feel compelled to carry on with the, the dive. I, I didn't return to the surface. Uh, my co-divers were blissfully unaware of all of this drama going on several meters below them. But we carried on with the dive. We, we, we found the bomb. Um, the, the whole operation went, went, went very well. It took us three and a half days to deal with it. But it was very successful, the, the whole operation. But I know okay, that was kind of there throughout. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, I was going to say, so can I ask, oh, in terms of the brilliant news that obviously you were able to get rid of the bomb, um, if it had gone off, what, what kind of devastation would it have brought to the east, east end of London? Yeah. Um, well, of, of course, at, at this early stage on, on the recce, it, it's unlikely that we would have caused it to function. The, the difficult time with a World War II bomb like that is dealing with the fuse. Um, now, all of these German bombs are transverse fuse. The fuse is in the side and is designed not to be damaged and a lot of them to go off a, a bit later. So we had, a, uh, as it turned out, perfectly intact transverse fuse, a Type 15 ECR fuse, to be precise, um, no, no. in perfectly good order that had to be dealt with. That, that was the tricky bit, um, which, which came on the, um, on the following Tuesday. Um, yeah, that was quite a, an interesting scene with um, one of my lance corporals holding a torch uh, that the, the 500 kilogram bomb in our rubber dinghy while I was um, taking the fuse out of the side of it. But um, that, that's <laughs> yeah. a, a, another story. But um, as, as far as my relationship with, with God was concerned, um, it, it was a bit of a kind of juvenile um, understanding at that stage. I felt that, you know, God had an interest in me and he was there and he was real and I knew all of that but I sort of thought of God as you know being somebody there who would would help me and um, if I was a good person back then you know that relationship would develop and we could be a really good help to one another couldn't we God and I so I would start going to the garrison church and um, I, in fact I probably knew all of the responses in the right A uh, service book off by heart and uh, I would read the lesson and do all of those things and and feel that I was being uh, an honest God following person um, what I hadn't realized was that actually there is um, a, a man called Jesus there is a, a Christian relationship that actually brings us into a proper relationship with our Heavenly Father, I hadn't got to that stage. Uh, the, the term that I use is that I was a Godian. Um, I knew God, but yeah. I wasn't by any means a Christian. I didn't know Christ, uh, and I didn't know um, I didn't know that my eternity was secure in Him, and so on. The essentials of the gospel had not got there at all. So it was quite a shallow yeah. understanding at that stage. But I was pretty enthusiastic about it. Sure. So, so you're known as a god, Ian, and obviously that's not someone who worships a god called Ian, but to someone who had this understanding of a god, but not actually having this personal relationship with him. And and you got you got challenged by that, didn't you? There was a, a radio interview, and and off the back of that, there was a bit of a yeah, yeah. about not just knowing about God, but actually knowing Him through Jesus. Can you can you talk us through a bit of that? Certainly. Yeah. Uh, it, it was sometime later that. Um, uh, BBC Radio 3 were doing a, a series of um, programs of featuring Christians who had hazardous occupations. 
And um, when they asked the army if they had a Christian bomb disposal officer, they said, Robbie Hall's your man. Uh, and and it, it, in I went uh, and had this interview that went out on Radio 3 early in the morning. And not many people heard it, I'm sure. But two very good Christian friends of, of ours did did hear it. And they could tell just by hearing what I was saying and how I was responding to the questions that, that I was that Godian person. I hadn't found Christ uh, and I was still missing something terribly important. Uh, and so this lovely couple, Tony and Mary, uh, had Helen and I round for supper and, and they explained to us, I'm sure, in, in very, very clear terms, the message of the Christian gospel. But it went straight over the top of my head. However, one thing did stick. Mary had said that Jesus was the key. And, and those that very short phrase just stuck in there. I knew there was something that I was missing. I could see in Tony and Mary that their their um, their faith was a real relationship with God. That was something far beyond that that I had. And I wanted to know more about it. So w- with that incentive and knowing that Jesus was the key, uh, I left to go and to find out what the real claims and convictions of a Christian faith would be so that in a good military way, I could make an informed choice for the future. <laughs> Great. So you had this with you had this kind of locked heart, if you like, and, and locked mind, but yet you wanted to unlock it. You wanted to find how that could be unlocked. And you, you'd heard that the answer was Jesus. Amen. And and so can you talk to us a bit about then um, how you discovered that that key was Jesus and, and share us a bit what happened when you went to the, the Falkland Islands? Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah, uh, unlocking it is a lovely way of expressing it. And, and Jesus being the key is entirely uh, appropriate. Um, I was posted down to the Falkland Islands. This is 1988. So quite some time after I'd been in the Falklands looking after minefields way back uh, previously. Um, and we didn't actually have that, that much to do. Um, we were fencing the minefields. They were recorded and measured and all of that, but we weren't disposing of the mines. So it was a fairly, um, fairly easygoing job. Anyway, down in, um, in Mount Pleasant military complex in the Falklands, there was a small facility that was called the Oasis run by the mission to military garrisons. And it was next door to the, the chapel in the military complex. Uh, I went along there. It was a lovely place to sit down in a civilized environment and have a cup of coffee and a chat to some lovely people. Anyway, there were two young uh, RAF uh, NCOs down in there at the time who were running a Bible study in the Oasis facility. Now, I thought this was the ideal opportunity. I could sit at the back of the study group. I could, as we say in the military, switch to receive and listen and, and try and understand more about the claims and the convictions of this Christian faith. Well, cutting a a long story short, um, after about a month uh, of sitting at the back and listening, uh, and we were studying the the letter to the Romans, following what they called the Romans Road, um, it it, it clicked. I I understood, uh, and I got there. I had to get over a few hurdles uh, along the way, but I got there, and and I became a Christian down in in the Falklands and accepted Jesus into my life and started that eternal relationship with my uh, with my heavenly father. It was lovely. But I, I did mention there were a few hurdles along the way. Yeah, can you share with us about that? Explain what these hurdles are. It would be, be really handy. 
Okay, well, I think I think so because uh, I found a number of other people have experienced the same hurdles along the way. Uh, I mentioned we were studying the Romans Road, and and the first difficulty really comes out of that early quotation from Romans three and verse twenty three, where it says that we have all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Well, I actually thought I was a pretty good guy. I mean, the bad people are these terrorists who put bombs in the ground and terrorize people and i'm one of the good guys who you know goes and clears up that that sort of a problem and i was generally a a pretty good guy and i found it quite hard to accept that when i looked at uh, people around me and so on that actually i was terribly sinful but of course i was misunderstanding the verse wasn't it it's saying that i fall short of the glory of god not the glory of other people So I'd got the benchmark completely in the wrong place. And when I set that benchmark right and we measured my righteousness against that of our Heavenly Father, then I realized I did fall an awful long way short in thoughts, in in words, in the things that I did. In so many different ways, I could see the truth that actually I did fall a long way short of God's glory. So hurdle number one was was crossed. And, And what was hurdle number two? Um, I guess we'll do the 110 meter hurdles here. What was that? What was the number two? Yeah, that, well, there's only there's only three to worry about. But um, <laughs> the next one comes in Romans five and verse eight, where it tells us that God demonstrates His love for us in this: that while we were still sinners, as we have discussed, Christ died for us. Now that just to me smacked of God punishing Jesus as a third party for what I had done wrong. That's quite counterintuitive to a soldier. You know, if we do something wrong, we expect to take the rap for it. You confess, you say what you've done and you take it uh, on the chin. So why should God be punishing Jesus for what I've done wrong? That didn't seem fair, didn't seem right, didn't seem godly. But then I realized again, I misread the verse completely. It's God who is demonstrating his own love for us in this Christ died for the for while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. So God and Christ are, are one and the same. So God isn't punishing a third party for what I've done wrong. He's taking that punishment on himself in Christ at the cross. Uh, and of course, he's entitled to do that. He's not punishing a third party at all. He's just doing that for me out of his love for me. It took me a while to get over that one, but that was hurdle number two. That's brilliant. So, yeah, so you saw it yourself as a, as a sinner when it's easy for all of us to go, no, I'm not, because we compare ourselves wrongly to not to God, but to others. But if you compare ourselves to God, we see it. And then you saw actually how God loved us. Jesus came and bore judgment for you. And so what what else is another another hurdle? Well, yeah, it, it, it's fairly straightforward. But it, 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 it's uh, it, Romans 6 and verse 23, where it says the wages of sin is death. Well, we, we sort of understand that. But it then says the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Now, again, from a military perspective, uh, nothing worth having comes easy. I was commando trained and I remember this, you know, day after day, week after week, month after month. You've got to push yourself, drive forward. If you want to win that green beret, you've really got to work for it, slave for it, suffer for it. And yet this greatest gift of all. Eternal life in Christ Jesus is just a gift of God. And there is no clever theology behind all all of this. It it, it is 
that simple. We have to acknowledge that we can't get there ourselves. There is nothing that we can do of ourselves to win our place in heaven. We only can accept it as that gracious gift of God given to us undeserved, but given to us. And we just have to accept it and grasp it and take it. I found that amazing. <laughs> but it was yeah. a lovely, a lovely moment. Yeah. So, so in many ways, what you're saying is the gospel is very much the good news about Jesus is it's very counterintuitive. It, it goes against what we assume about ourselves and about God. But actually, when we hear it, the mystery of, of God and the good news is revealed in, in Jesus. Absolutely right. Yeah. And, you know, having leapt over those three hurdles, um, I, I got to the fourth stage point of, of the Romans road, which is Romans 10 and verse nine, where it says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, and you then believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And, um, you know, that's the, the prayer that I was able to pray down in the Falkland Islands as I confess my sin to God. I accepted I couldn't get there myself and I just received that gracious gift of eternal salvation in him. It was a great day. Yeah, I'm sure it must have been amazing for you. It's always great when anyone comes to Jesus. So you, you turn from yourself and you turn to trust in Jesus and you're given that gift of that relationship with God. And, and obviously you're still in the army at this point. You were still in the Falklands and you continued on into the army then um, as a Christian now, as this follower of, of Jesus. That led you to places like Af- Afghanistan. Do you want to share a bit about how you lived as a, as a Christian in a, in a very tricky Yes, yes, of course. Love, love, love to share, share some of that. And people did assume that, um, you know, Robbie Hall had become a, a completely over the top Christian now and he would almost certainly leave and become a vicar, which is what one was expected to do, I suppose. But um, it was very clear to me, I mean, back to the gasometer uh, incident that I was where God wanted me to be. And it was very clear to me that God wanted me to stay in the military within that bomb disposal community. And that was my mission field, if you like. Um, but it was also my professional field um, and, and the whole bomb disposal capability was growing massively. Uh, and we really needed people with a bit of experience like myself to stay in and not not to leave, actually. Um, and, and that growth continued through all of the, um, the the different sort of humanitarian demining crises that we went through in the in the 90s and, and on and through the first Iraq conflict. But it really came to a head with with Afghanistan, with the counter IED campaign against the Taliban in um, in Afghanistan, which was incredibly demanding uh, for us as a, a bomb disposal community. Um, up to that point, I suppose we tended to think of our top end high threat bomb disposal operators, as we call them, uh, as a, a one man against one device sort of capability. Uh, and I would pit any one of my top end high threat operators against any single device. And of course, he would uh, he would come out on top uh, every time. But in Afghanistan, we were dealing with huge volumes of improvised devices. Uh, they were basically mines that were made up with pressure plates that, that were they were daisy chained to other devices. They were very cunningly um, placed. They were very complicated in the way that they were used. Uh, the Taliban is a very cunning enemy indeed. So our operators were being required to go out and deal not with just a device, but possibly 16, 17, 18 devices, all placed awkwardly around a compound or on its access routes uh, and so on. 
So it was very demanding. It was too demanding, actually, just for um, the army on our on our own to uh, to deal with it. So we needed to to broaden the gene pool uh, for our high end operators. And uh, with my diving background, I knew exactly where to look. And so it was back into the clearance diving branch of the Royal Navy. Uh, and so we were bringing operators in from the other services, uh, people who had no uh, ordnance background at all. And we were training them up to be high threat operators. And that proved uh, highly successful. We also uh, developed what I call a, a team approach. So we would send rather than one man out to, to deal with a, a device or an incident, he would have a search team with him and close protection teams with him and trainee operators with him who could deal with simple things so that the high threat operator was only used where he was really needed. So we, we completely changed the, the whole way that we went about the business of bomb disposal in Afghanistan. Uh, we still lost um, a number of operators. We had um, 16 fatalities within the bomb disposal capability over those years. Uh, many of them killed during the high risk search phase of the operation, simply identifying where all of the devices were placed. But it was a very demanding environment, um, operating very often in 47, 48 degrees centigrade, um, often with snipers uh, taking pot shots at you, uh, often in and around compounds with heavy weights on their backs, trying to identify tiny little pressure plates. Uh, embedded in the, the sand, which was like a very fine talcum powder that would hide things really well. So it was a tough time um, in Afghanistan for the whole bomb disposal community. Uh, and we felt the losses very severely indeed. And how how did you deal with that as now a follower of, of Jesus? How did, yeah, how, how, did it, how did you cope with that? Uh, I'm, I'm absolutely certain that, that, um, that God placed me in, in command of the training organization for for bomb disposal at that time in order to be able to cope with with that sort of problem within the community. So, um, yes, I found myself running uh, memorial services. I found myself speaking to uh, relatives, parents, wives uh, and so on. Um, and I was able to deal with that as, as, as a Christian person um, in a way that I certainly um, I think I would have really struggled um, you know, as the, the, the Robbie Hall. Uh, of old um it was so in interesting that uh, within our own community everybody knew where where i stood uh, as a christian and um you know when times get get really tough and those difficult questions uh, are being asked you know why does god allow dot 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 people really want to come and talk and um so it was an important time of, of, of witness and of being able to provide that sort of pastoral care, that shoulder to cry on, that um, Christian perspective uh, on some of these things. Um, yeah, very interesting years. Yeah, so you were able to pass on the comfort that you'd received um, to others. You know, you'd freely received and you were able to freely, freely give. Um, that's Absolutely. great. And, and, and Joe, we've, I'd love to ask you more, but we're really running short on, on time. But um can you just share with us briefly? Um, you're, you're married. You've, you've got kids. Can you just share with us what your your wife is, is Helen, I believe, uh, her reaction was to to you becoming a follower of, of Jesus and the, just the the impact that had on your on your kids as well. Yeah, of course. Yeah, well, Helen was um, one of these um, very religious people who had been to the Church of Wales every Sunday, I think, since she was about three years of age. Um, 
And so she didn't take necessarily that kindly to being told um, by me that she wasn't a Christian. And I'd been away for six months, so she'd had the, the burden of looking after the three children on her own for all that time. And so there was all of this adjustment that we had to make anyway with me returning from that operational theatre after such a long time away. Uh, and here I was, a completely different person, a Christian, and trying to um, to share that faith with, with Helen. So, yes, we had a few um, Italian conversations early on. Um, our son actually was was listening in, seven years of age, and he came to faith in, in Christ even before Helen did. But it wasn't very long before Helen, too, came to uh, um, uh, her faith in Christ. And we were baptized together the, the following Easter. It was um, it was amazing. So Helen came through for the Lord. Oh, that's such great news. Yeah, so good to hear. Um, yeah, I'd love to ask you more about your family. But we, we, we mentioned on the fly that um, to people and the information that went out there that, that sadly you're, you're battling cancer currently. So if we, if we just maybe wrap up with just a, a few kind of questions about um about that that'd be it'd be great and then if people want to ask some more they can do so in the q a afterwards um but how, how did you react when you were you were told that about, about your cancer yeah um well that was a, a bombshell uh of a different type uh when, when it came uh, it was completely un- unexpected i was asymptomatic but got myself checked and uh cutting a long story short was found to have quite advanced uh prostate cancer um and yeah i mean we obviously ask ourselves lots of 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 questions um i remember about a a month into this process after various scans and and tests and so on having that um slightly difficult conversation with the consultant about life expectancy and uh, it was all pretty pretty gloomy stuff really but i left after that um that consultation to go back to our home that night in Gloucestershire. And um, when we got there, my, my son, who um, is an air ambulance uh, operator, returned and he had just been attending um, where a young guy of seven had been killed in a, a road traffic accident. Uh, it turned out he was the son of a very close Christian friend of, of mine. Um, that night, um, another Christian friend, um, a lady I, I, I found committed suicide. Uh, in her 50s uh, when we returned to to bridge end the the following day i took the funeral of an 82 year old christian lady and i'm sure that that god was trying to say to me that week in, in many ways that actually the number of days years that we have uh, in this life is is not the critical factor it's it's using that time that we are on earth to come to that living faith in, in christ so that our eternity is secure in him you know the real hidden peril in life is not taking a bomb to bits uh, underwater or or anywhere else it's getting to the end of this life and not having found that key that is jesus that key to eternal life in heaven uh, you know i'm very much reminded of um the letter that peter wrote first peter and it's right in the first chapter of, of first peter where, where he talks to us about this living hope we have, this inheritance that we have in the gospel that is eternity in heaven. But Peter goes on to say, though for now you have to experience grief in various trials. And these are there so that your faith, which is more precious than gold, 
can be used to bring honor and glory to the name of Jesus. And, and that's happening. Uh, I'm being given opportunities as a victim, if you like, of, of cancer to bring ministry to, to others who are, are suffering in uh, you know, life threatening illness situations, situations where I wouldn't normally, without being a fellow victim, if you like, have that opportunity to come alongside in the same way. So God is, is using it. Um, it has been, of course, a great test of, of one's own faith. Um, it's easy to say it in the context of our chatting now. It's not so easy at three o'clock in the morning um, when you haven't been sleeping for days because of the steroids and the treatment and other things and the anxiety that inevitably is going on in your head. You know that your faith is, is tested. Of course, it is in those times. But it's great to have it tested from some from time to time. And I find as a minister now that I, I can get into that pulpit with a, a real confidence, a real knowledge that what I'm preaching is is true. I believe it in my heart, you know, back to Romans 10, 9. If you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, then you will be saved. Uh, I've had that tested. I've had that tested very surely. But um my faith is there, and I want to use that to bring honour to Christ. Sure, that I mean, such a powerful way to to note to end end the interview on this. You've got now this Jesus who secures your eternity, guarantees you'll be with him forever, but is also with you in in the here and now, on the way to to the forever. And I think it was Spurgeon who said that 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 the God never has to go through the fire unless he joins them in it. And just hearing what you're saying there is just showing us really how Jesus is with you in the now and he'll take you through safely uh, to to eternity. So, Robbie, thank you so much for for being so honest and and open and and sharing with us. It's been brilliant to have you here. Now, what we've got now is we're going to we're going to switch now to um, the legend of Tony Brown from Bradford. He's going to come now and share how how Jesus is that same Jesus that Robbie's spoken of is is relevant and so relevant to each one of our lives. So, Tony, I'm going to hand over to you right now. Thank you. Thank you so much. It is so good to be able to share with you this evening. And uh, my name is Tony Brown. I'm one of the evangelists with the Association of Evangelists. And um, it's just been so amazing to hear Robbie's story tonight. Um when he said about being in bomb disposal and not feeling nervous about going to deal with those situations, I live in Bradford. I, I get nervous just going to the shops. Um, so I really admire him. And uh, But what a transformation in his life. And I just want to build a little bit on the back of what, what Robbie's saying. I'm going to share some, some very similar thoughts, which is, again, I believe a God thing tonight. Um, to, to what Robbie's been saying as, as we look at this very short passage over the next 10 or 15 minutes or so um, from Mark's Gospel. I had an interesting situation this week. Um, uh, Wednesday evening, 10 p.m., um, I had a phone call from West Yorkshire Police. Apparently, uh, a member of the public had reported me for breaking COVID-19 rules. Um, the accusation was apparently that I'd been having friends around my house on a regular basis. I assured the police officer that this couldn't be true because I don't have any friends. And also, I never invited any friends around before the lockdown, so why would I start doing it now? I I, I don't know about you. Um, I don't know if you're you're like me, but the mere presence 
of the law makes me feel guilty. Uh, if you ever had a, a police car behind you in the traffic, um, you maybe convince yourself that even though you know your car is taxed, you've got car insurance, your car's MOT'd, uh, you're driving within the speed limit, uh, you're not on your phone, you're wearing your seatbelt, you must be breaking the law in some way. And at any moment, those blue lights are going to be flashing and you're going to be pulled over to the side uh, for a caution from the police. Now, it appears from our Bible reading in Mark chapter 10 that this young man who approached Jesus had no fear of the law. Uh, why should he? Uh, by his own admission, he never broke it. Uh, the meeting between this particular man and Jesus is recorded three times in the Gospels. And from the different accounts, we know three things about him. First of all, we know he was young. He was described as young. But but again, most commentators would say that could mean he was anything between 24 and 40. So young-ish. Uh, he, he was a ruler of sorts, possibly a leader within a synagogue. And we also find out that he was wealthy. So often when you hear these verses read, it's spoken of as the story of the rich young ruler. But I just want to briefly suggest three things about him uh, for us to think about this evening. I want to suggest that he had a wrong view of Jesus. Secondly, he had a wrong view of himself. And finally, he had a wrong view of salvation. So first of all, he had a wrong view of Jesus. Uh, we read that this young man came running to and knelt down before Jesus. Uh, there was no doubt about it. He was sincere and he held Jesus in high regard. He had a question for Jesus and he believed that Jesus was the right person to answer that question. And his question was this. He said, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Now, now this appears to be a noble question, but Jesus, like only Jesus can, sees beyond the question and immediately begins to tackle the issue at hand. Jesus responds by saying this. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That is God. What Jesus is doing here is saying to the rich and ruler, who do you say that I am? And this is a quick question that Jesus asks each one of us. Who do you think that Jesus is? That's a really, really important question. You see, there are many who hold Jesus in high regard. Uh, there are some who would believe that Jesus would have been a good man, perhaps a holy man. Uh, some would claim Jesus to be one of many spiritual leaders, one of several people who could lead a person to God. Who do you believe Jesus to be? Well, I think it's important for us to note that in these verses, Jesus isn't saying that he's that he isn't good or that he isn't God. Uh, we know from the word of God that clearly he was both good and God. So what is he saying in saying this to this rich young ruler? I believe what he's wanting to do is, is to correct the rich young ruler's thinking about him. From what follows in this encounter, we find that, Jesus, that he believed Jesus was really only a good man, 
just as he believed himself to be. And in this, he then had a wrong view, not only of Jesus, but a wrong view of himself. You see, Jesus went on to say to the man, you know, the commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Really? Is that really what he believed about himself? His answer reveals that either he had a very high view of himself or a very low view of the law. I would want to suggest that both are clearly at play here. He had a wrong view of himself. It was like he was saying to Jesus, you are good and so am I. You see, what makes him good in his own mind is that he believes he keeps the law. It was a popular belief back then, and it continues to be so today. In order to get to heaven, to inherit eternal life, a person just needs to be good. You see, this rich young ruler was very much like Colonel Robbie, or Pastor Robbie as he is today. He was a Godian. He felt that he had a relationship with God. He knew about God. He was keeping rules. He was keeping regulations and the law. He was he was doing his bit. He just needed to be good. And good you appear to be when you have a very low view of that which is bad. You know, I like lots of evangelists spend time talking to people about Jesus and particularly when you do it in the open air. Um, you know, if you go up to a, a member of the public and ask them if they believe they'll go to heaven when they die, they'll often say yes. And when they say yes, you say, well, why do you believe that? And they often say, well, it's because I'm a good person. You see, most people believe they're they're good. Maybe you can do the, the commandments test on them like Jesus is doing here with the rich and ruler. You could say to a person, um, have you ever lied? And, and they'll just say yes, but they'll justify that a little bit. They'll say, yeah, but only only the white ones. And you maybe say, have you ever stolen anything? They'll often say yes, but, but nothing big. Uh, you maybe say to them, well, have you ever looked at someone in lust? And they'll say yes, but hasn't everyone? You see, they, they, they've got answers. They justify themselves to make themselves appear good. Now, Jesus shared six commandments with this rich young ruler. He said, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he said, Jesus, I've kept them all. C could we say we've kept them all? You see, this young man saw these laws as something external. So he wasn't really lying when he said, well, I haven't murdered anyone. I've not committed adultery. But you see, Jesus said the law was not only an external matter, but also an internal one. In the famous Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, Jesus said some uh, some very challenging things. He said this, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder. But whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you. Whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in the danger of judgment. He goes on to say, you've heard that it said of those of old, you shall not commit adultery. 
But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, Jesus was saying the law is not just about external law keeping. There's an internal problem as well that we all have. Like Robbie said, we are all sinners. We're all guilty for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23, Robbie quoted that. You see, when we believe ourselves to be good, we base that judgment on our standards, on our own standards of goodness. Uh, we, We look at others around us that we consider bad and find ourselves saying, well, I must be good because I'm not as bad as them. I'm not Adolf Hitler. I've never murdered anyone. I've never robbed a bank. I've never broken the COVID-19 rules so I can report you to the police. But note what Jesus says here to this rich and ruler. He says, only one is good, and that is God. When we compare ourselves to God, we see ourselves as we truly are. We're not good. We're sinners in need of forgiveness. Romans 3 and verse 10 says there is none righteous, no, not one. You see, this young man saw himself as good. How, how do you see yourself? This young man had a wrong view of Jesus and a wrong view of himself. And finally, he therefore had a wrong view of salvation. Let's return in our final thought for this evening to this young man's question. Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? You see, many fall into the trap of thinking that salvation is about what they do. This young man believes himself to be doing all that he can do by keeping the law. And yet his question shows he has a lack of assurance. His confidence lies in his own ability. He hasn't placed his faith fully in God. He's a Godian. He's trying to do all the external things and saying, well, I think I'm doing the right thing. I'm praying and I'm keeping the law. I'm good at meetings. I'm maybe tithing. I'm trying my best. But he needs to put his faith fully in Jesus. See, friends, I, I don't know who's listening to me tonight. I can only see myself at the moment. But maybe that's you. Perhaps you are trying to earn God's favor by trying to be a good boy or a good girl. But you know you just can't do it. You know it will never be enough. You don't have any assurance of God's love and forgiveness. Maybe like this young man, you're sincere in your efforts to serve God. He was willing to run to Jesus and bow before him, but ultimately something was holding him back. And Jesus knew what this problem was. He knew that the problem for this rich and ruler was his possessions. See, friends, many have turned their back on Jesus to hold on to their possessions. And yet we find Jesus saying earlier in Mark's gospel in in Mark 8, 36, he said, what good is it if someone is to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? You know, it was the German uh, reformer, Martin Luther, who said, I've held many things in my hands and I've lost them all. But whatever I've placed in God's hands, that I still possess. Now, Mark tells us that Jesus directed his gaze directly at this young man and he loved him 
You see, Jesus loves us and he wants what's best for us and he knows what's best for us. And Jesus' incredibly challenging command to this young man was motivated by his love for him. Jesus said, one thing you lack, go away, sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Is there something stopping you from coming to Jesus? Whatever it is, give it up, friends. Give it up. Jim Elliott, a missionary who gave his life in service of Jesus, is famously reported to have said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Friends, our possessions can go in a moment. Our job can go in a moment. Our freedom can go in a moment. Our life can go in a moment. That's what Robbie was saying. But we give up all that, all these things to Christ to gain something we cannot lose. Eternal life. Salvation. Jesus said to this young man, if he gave up his possessions and followed him, he would have treasure in heaven. But his possessions, sadly, had become his God. Is there something in your life that you love more than God? Are you willing to give it up and come to to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Friends, the choice is yours. Are you going to follow? Are you going to do as the rich and ruler did? And he walked away. You know, I when I spoke to the police officer, police officer the other night regarding um, the charge that I'd broken the COVID-19 rules, I had to admit that I had. See, earlier in the week, my son and his wife had come around to my house to walk our dog. They were in our garden getting the dog as they did. My father-in-law, who was taking his daily walk, just happened to be passing by and stopped for a chat. It was at that same moment that my brother-in-law appeared with some shopping for us. I had to explain to the officer that uh, we had someone bring us in shopping because we've got three diabetics in the house. And that my son and his wife had come to walk the dog one last time before she was put to sleep, which she was this week, sadly. You see, I had some good reasons for breaking the law. But you know what he said to me? He said, I sympathize, but the law mustn't be broken. And if I persisted, I would be fined a hundred pounds. The Bible says that it's for a man to die once and after this judgment. We cannot stand before God with excuses, however reasonable they may appear to us, thinking he will just let us off. We cannot stand before him and try and justify our own goodness. No, we've broken God's law. And the fine needed to be paid. And friends, Jesus paid the fine on the cross. His final words, it is finished. So let us think about this. We can be like the rich and ruler and walk away. Or we can allow Jesus to pay our fine. Will you come to him tonight? Will you accept Christ? I'm going to finish uh, with a prayer. And if you're ready to follow Jesus tonight, to put him first, to lay everything else aside, you can repeat the words of this prayer after me. So here's a prayer. Pray after me if you really want to receive Christ tonight. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father. 
I have sinned against you through my own fault in thought and word and deed. And in what I have left undone for the sake of your son, our Lord Jesus Christ, forgive me all my offences and grant that I may serve you in newness of life to the glory of your name. Amen. Back over to you, Martin. Just that email one more, one more time. For those of you who want to find out a bit more, um, maybe you've trusted in Christ tonight, maybe you're just interested in finding out more, it, contact us at zoom at aov.org.uk. That's zoom at aov.org.uk. Thanks again and God bless you all. And we'll say over and out now. Thank you.